This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk. Welcome to Money Guide with Mary Stirk. And today we are talking about estate planning mistakes that can really cost you mega bucks. And I'm really excited today because I have a special guest for this show, Dan Dykstra, who's a partner at the Heidman Law Firm and has been with them for the last 39 years, is here with us. One of his areas of specialty is in the estate planning arena. So I'm very excited, Dan, to have you on our show today. Well, thank you, Mary. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so I think that a lot of people have concerns and questions about their estate planning. And it's such a complex topic that it's easy to get confused about. Yes, and uh, we hear about changes all the time and what might happen in the future and what's the smartest thing for me to do today. And sometimes that just freezes people. Right. And then they don't move forward, which is one of the mistakes. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So here's the deal. While, of course, you need to uh, consult your own attorney, and this cannot be construed as legal advice given to you over the radio, we are going to talk about some strategies and things that can prevent estate planning mistakes in your life that can really cost you these big mega bucks. So the first thing I think that's the obvious mistake to avoid is just not having any estate planning documents altogether. Boy, that's for sure. Some people just say, oh, I'm never going to (laughs) die, or I'm only going to do the planning when my spouse passes away, or they go on vacation. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that gets them going. But yes, not having a will or a trust or some documents is one of the mistakes that might uh, create some mega costs for the family. And in order to help protect the family, having a will or a trust can really... um, help the situation, especially when we have uh, a lot of non-traditional marriages. Sure. Might be second marriage for someone or or both, and they might have some children by both marriages. And if you don't have a will, all states, including the state of Iowa, will come up with their own will that splits (laughs) your estate. I'm pretty sure I don't want the state (laughs) deciding who gets my stuff. (laughs) Right. Because it's going to include not only your surviving spouse, but to some degree, but also uh, the kids from your prior marriage. Um, And so it can really create some interesting discussions and problems uh, if that planning is not done. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in at least some states, a surviving spouse uh, does have the rights to elect, you know, some of those assets or things like that if there's no will but they by no means get awarded all of it there's two um, specific concepts one is if there's no will at all Mm -hmm. the state divides it partly to the spouse partly to those children as indicated and if there is a will a spouse has the right to elect against the will so even if there is a will if um, that spouse doesn't receive a certain percentage of the assets they can take against the will. Most states try to protect that surviving spouse to some degree. Gotcha. So so if you are doing estate planning at the end of your life and your intent is to completely cut out your spouse, the state might have something to say about it after you've actually passed away. As would the spouse. (laughs) (laughs) Quite sure they would. (laughs) 
All right. So I think that that's definitely one big estate planning mistake to avoid. And, um, you know, I would imagine that dying without a will, which is called dying intestate, does come with some cost. So not only is there going to be probate costs, but there's probably additional levels of cost because the state has to figure some of this out. Well, what happens is uh, um, there needs to be a probate then if there is no um, will, and especially if there's real estate. Mm-hmm. That helps divide things out. There can be arguments about what we call a spousal support, uh, which can be claimed uh, right away. Uh, and again, as we indicated, uh, you can elect to take against the will or um, elect what assets you're going to take under the intestate law. So it does take longer. Uh, so it normally incurs some extra time as well as expense and some extra court cost as well. So one big thing that I've heard people say can cost a lot of money in an estate is if your will doesn't have something called a disaster clause. So Dan, tell us a little bit about what a disaster clause is and, and how that helps protect an estate. A disaster clause comes into play if the people you named as the beneficiaries uh, predecease you. So if I name my spouse and my kids and something horrible happens, I no longer have a spouse or children, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I never named anybody. No one's left alive to take my assets. So um, if you do not have a disaster clause, again, your state will decide where it goes. Typically it's to your parents, brothers and sisters, and sometimes that's okay, although we don't normally like to give assets going upstream to parents Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. But having a disaster clause allows you to say, all right, if something should terrible should happen to my family, maybe I can help a local charity. Maybe I can help that nephew who uh, has some disabilities. Maybe I can help put uh, some of my family through college. It gives you a chance to be very flexible and creative but you need to so state where you want those assets to go. Got it, got it. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Again, doing the planning is all about your wishes and aligning what happens with the money you have once you're gone with what you actually want to have happen to it. Exactly. Okay, so you mentioned this upstream idea. And so to clarify for people, if you leave something upstream, it means you're going up your lineage, (laughs) like it's you leaving money to your parents. If you're leaving something to somebody downstream, that tends to mean your children or your grandchildren. And Dan, what's it called when you go outwards, like to siblings and things like that? Well, there's... Side stream? (laughs) (laughs) We, we use a term called um, degree of consanguinity, which is a very oh fancy term <laughs> that simply says, how close are you? So my sister, I go up to my parents and then one step down to my sister. Mm-hmm. That's two degrees of consanguinity. And that is used as well to determine kind of how far out you can go. Okay. But you really, yes, that's just a little chart where you can do the family tree. So the upstream, downstream to siblings and things like that comes into play and can cost you a lot of money in, in lost, you know, value if you're not thinking clearly about how you want this to roll. And part of the reason is because different states have different inheritance taxes, whether you're going upstream or downstream or to somebody that's maybe out to the side like that. Exactly. Most states protect assets going to your spouse as not being subject to tax. But in our states, in our area here, they take very different approaches otherwise as to um, what they might tax if it went to even your children or certainly nieces and nephews um, and people a little farther 
uh, away from you. Um, Minnesota, for example, uh, has a $3 million exclusion, which is a pretty big number, Mm -hmm. but um, they count even your assets in Iowa when they determine their inheritance tax in Minnesota. So a lot of people have a cabin or perhaps a little farm or something in Minnesota, and that can be subject to tax pretty quickly. Um, State of South Dakota, of course, has very few taxes that affect us, so no income tax, no inheritance tax. State of Iowa protects assets going to children, uh, grandchildren, without any inheritance tax. But Nebraska only allows $40,000 going to each child, and thereafter there's a small death tax or inheritance tax. So if you get to pick the state you're going to die in, (laughs) most of us do not have that option. South Dakota and Iowa are clearly the uh, uh, least expensive places. And when you say pick the state you're going to die in, you mean being a resident of that state when you die. Right. Correct. So you can have property in these other states, but it really fluctuates back to the state that you're a resident of. If it is real estate, and if you just own the real estate outright, not mm-hmm. in an entity, okay. that state will pick it up as well, where the ah, land is located. So gotcha. that ownership also makes a difference. But people can make a, save a lot of money on income tax as well, mm-hmm. uh, based on where they're living their last 20 years or 30 years of their right, life. Right, for sure. Um, and so oftentimes people will sneak over to South Dakota or other places Uh, because of that lack of income tax. So for all of you out there listening, you probably do want to familiarize yourself with your state's rules about money left upstream to parents, downstream to children or lineal descendants, you know, going sideways out to siblings, nieces, nephews, and things like that. And here's how this mistake can cost you a lot of money, okay? Um, I'm going to give you a real-life example of someone that we worked with. We had two sisters who had significant estates, and neither one of them had any children. And their initial estate plan was to leave the money to each other, and then if something happened to one of them, they would leave it to their brother, and then if something happened to him, it would go down to the brother's children, the nieces and nephews. Now, because of the state that they lived in, what that meant was that uh, leaving it to each other as a sibling was going to get taxed the first time in their state. And then when they died, the second sister dies, leaving it to the brother is going to get taxed a second time going to a sibling. And or if they're going to leave it to their nieces and nephews, it's getting taxed a second time as nieces and nephews for the state inheritance tax. So they could avoid some of this instead of doing like the direct to my sister and then the brother and then down to the nieces and nephews. They could have avoided some of that taxation by simply being clear on their understanding of their state tax rules and not having the same wealth go through multiple layers of taxation at different deaths, you know, in their family. Yeah, it's important to just recognize not only do I want to, who, I, who do I want to take care of? Mm-hmm. Who are the people that I really care about? But what are the consequences for that as well? And so we always try to tell people that's fine. If that's who you want it to go to, that's fine. But these are the consequences for making that decision. And that might change their mind a little bit or restructure it uh, to make it a little, to help protect uh, their assets. <laughs> Congratulations to Mary Stirk for being named the 2020 Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors list for the third year running. 
with Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and today we're talking about estate planning mistakes that could cost you mega bucks. Now, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that's come up in the last few years that sometimes gets missed is estate planning surrounding people's digital assets. Digital assets are interesting because some of us have no clue what that means. <laughs> some of us live in a digital world and some of us just are scared of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but when you just stop and think, all right, I ordered a couple of Christmas presents last year on Amazon. Okay, that's actually a digital transaction. And uh, I, maybe I have a frequent flyer account with a couple of airlines and those are building up some miles and I may have done some online banking. And when you really just stop and think about it, oh, yeah, I guess I do have a digital footprint sure. when it comes to my estate planning. Okay. What's interesting is that many of these entities, um, the airlines or even Amazon and so forth, have very strict rules about what happens when someone dies. Um, and unless you have given authority to your executor or the person holding a power of attorney as well, they may not have access to those particular assets. Now, oftentimes it's not a lot of value, but it can be a lot of value. Sure. I had a client with hundreds of thousands of airline miles that he had collected over many years through his business, and he didn't want those to go to waste. Sure. And I know a few people who have Bitcoins, a cryptocurrency, which is way beyond my scope of uh, (laughs) understanding. But the one thing I do know is that they have very strict passwords. Mm -hmm. And unless you know that password, you are not going to get to that cryptocurrency. So the solution here to avoiding loss of digital asset value is to let, while you're alive, is to make sure your power of attorneys reflect that that power of attorney can access those things. And once you've passed away, reflecting that in either a will or a trust, that the executor can have access to it. Correct, that the executor or trustee absolutely can get to it. Um, Because without that, technically you may just lose those assets completely, Mm -hmm. which is not a good thing. Yeah, and and I even think about it in terms of like, especially if you're a business owner, um, where I've seen this happen is as a business owner, you might have a master credit card for your company that many of your executives have. Let's say it's your Amex account. Many of your executives have that, but all of the quote unquote points or values from the entire corporate account flow to the business owner, you know, to utilize. And many people are building up hundreds of thousands of points that turn into cash back or they turn into gift cards back or things like that. And those are another example of just not even being aware that there's a value out there that can be lost if you're not careful about how you plan your digital assets. And although sticky notes on your computer are very convenient, (laughs) putting all your passwords on sticky notes on your computer is not necessarily a good idea. Agreed. So we do encourage people to write those down, put them in a safe place, and uh, uh, protect them uh, either on a flash drive with a password or there's programs where you can use that. But for most part, writing down the important ones. Yes, for sure. Okay, so in terms of having things taken care of correctly, let's move to one other area, and that's about how you actually title your assets. I know that there's people who have gotten stuck before in the estate planning, and it has cost lots and lots of money because they didn't have things titled the right way. 
So Dan, tell us a little bit about what some of that means. We can do all the estate planning in the world, identifying where we want all assets to go. But if the asset itself is a contract, like life insurance, an IRA or 401k, or sometimes even bank accounts, if they have named beneficiaries, that's where it goes. And sometimes people write those named beneficiaries down thinking, okay, I'll just change those like every year because I'm giving uh, this account to this son, Mm -hmm. this account to my daughter, and they're roughly equal. And then they spend one, and then it's no longer roughly equal. So it is a mistake that's made often failing to correctly title those assets either in your own name without beneficiaries or making those beneficiaries match what the estate planning is. That happens frequently. So let's say that there's an account, let's just for for sake of argument, let's say somebody has an investment account, not an IRA, just a straight investment account that's a million dollars and they don't have any beneficiaries on it. So if you pass away, the end result of that ultimately is it has to go through probate first before it can be distributed to whoever is going to get that money, right? Yes, if it's just titled in the individual's name, not in their trust, right? but in an individual's name, it would need to go through probate because brokers and investment advisors um, want someone with authority mm-hmm. <laughs> to identify what happens. Right, and when it goes through probate, there's a cost involved in that. So just maybe a range of probate costs on a million dollars account, is there a range of costs that you might see on that? Well, it depends on what state it is in. Okay. Um, different states charge different costs. There's clearly court costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Many attorneys in our area just charge on an hourly basis. Some charge on a percentage basis because the law allows that as well. If there is an executor, that person also can charge a fee. So you might lose 1% to 3% uh, perhaps uh, on those various expenses. The advantage of if it's an investment account is uh, we can call Sturk Financial Services and say this person passed away. Let us know, know what the information is. Um, get us all the details, and and we're going to do a change of title ultimately to a surviving spouse or mm-hmm, kids or somebody. Mm-hmm. So with good financial planners, it's not so much work for the lawyers. Right, and, and I think that that's important to understand. When you're doing your reviews with your financial planners, one of the things you should be talking about is how things have beneficiaries on them and are they up to date. But in any instance where you have an investment account, it's pretty likely that you can put a beneficiary on there to avoid it. And in that million-dollar account question, if you can avoid ten dollars to $30,000 worth of all of those costs and keep that money in your family instead of going away to all these you know, variety of costs, that's a great thing. So let's avoid it by simply putting a right beneficiary on there. Now, one of the questions I get a lot of time from people is, how should I be titling my real estate? And the the most frequent question I get is, um, well, should I just put my kids' names on my house? Well, my general response is, unless you have one child and no more children, Mm -hmm. and that child is very dependable and does not have a threat of judgments or liens against them, maybe that's okay. Mm -hmm. But normally, if there's a husband and wife, we're very happy titling it in joint tenancy because on the first death, it automatically goes to that person. But putting four children on your house with you is, uh, I would classify it as a pretty grave mistake 
because if you ever go to sell that house, you need the signature of those children and their spouses if they're married oh my. in order to transfer that house. <laughs> and they technically could get a lien against themselves, which would go against your home. So I really messy, do. Messy, messy, messy. Yes, it mm-hmm. creates chaos in the title records and you lose control of your own home. Yeah, and that's not uh, ever what we really want to see happen with that. Now, if it is a husband and wife, one thing that they've seen that has been a mistake made by people is they're not clear about what kind of joint ownership to have it be because there's more than one type of joint ownership. You can have joint ownership with rights of survivorship, and you can have something called joint tenants in common. And joint tenants in common means that you each own your own specific share of something, but then your share of that asset has to go through the will or probate or whatever the process is before it gets to whoever it's going to get to. Whereas joint tenants with rights of survivorship at a death just immediately passes to the other owners in that group. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So on your home... Uh, for a husband and wife, joint tenancy with right of survivorship is normally the best idea. Right. Now, if you have significant assets, one of which might be a farm that has significant value, sometimes we will do those as tenants in common because we want half the value in each estate. Right. And maybe we want that half interest going someplace else. Mm-hmm. So there's always an exception. <laughs> of course. <laughs> because that's what we do. Um, but the joint tenancy is a good idea on your home. So the bottom line is the estate mistake to avoid that can cost you a lot of money is just not being clear and aware of how you should have your assets beneficiaried and titled to save on a lot of unnecessary costs. Now, estate planning has gone through a variety of different levels and changes and law changes, and there's always things coming out about it. And just when you think you know how things are supposed to work, another change happens. But we do know that there is a change that is likely to come up in the future. So Dan, share with us a little bit about what's probably going to happen on January 1 of 2026. Well, other than the fact that we're going to watch the Iowa Hawkeyes in the uh, Rose Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had to throw that in. Um, You know you're talking to a diehard Cyclones fan here, right? (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) All right, carry on. (laughs) Currently, under the tax law that was passed a couple years ago, we have a very large federal estate tax exclusion, $11.4 million, and it goes up based on inflation every year. But that law says that on January 1, 2026, it goes back to the prior law plus inflation. The prior law was about $5 million. We think with inflation, maybe it'll be about $6 million then on January 1 of 2026. And that set, that is what we call a sunset provision. Okay. And so if they, if Congress and the president doesn't do anything else, that will happen. Okay. So, you know, that seems like a long time from now, but really time flies and we lose track of things. So there's a lot of discussion. If that happens, $6 million is still a very big number. Uh, protects a lot of people and it's for each person. So a husband and wife could get $12 million, which is again, a very large number. But if someone has assets they'd really like to transfer free of federal estate tax in excess of that six million they probably need to do that before january 1 of 2026 failure to do that will mean that that exemption is lost forever ah that's a long time 
<laughs> yes, even in tax law, that's a long time. That's an undoable mistake. <laughs> so that could cost someone uh, a lot of money. So uh, my guess is in 2025, there'll be a lot of discussion about this yeah. and maybe some assets transferred. Because there's advantages to do that, to take advantage of that. And there's disadvantages because when you make a gift, the person who receives that asset gets your income tax basis, mm-hmm. what, whatever you paid for it, which means that when they sell it, they might have a gain. But anyway, that's a discussion sort of for 2025, but don't lose sight of it. Be aware that it's out there for sure. And it's certainly going to affect larger estates, but the effect of it can be massive and really can cost you some mega bucks. So we've hoped that this has been valuable information for those of you listening out there. We hope that it prevents you from losing value to unnecessary things and uh, keeps those mega bucks in your pocket instead of somebody else's. So thank you, Dan, and thanks for listening to Money Guide with Mary Stirk. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of your audio provider and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can ensure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should only be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Insurance offered through Sterk Financial Services, which is not affiliated with Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated. Neither Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated nor its representatives provide tax or legal advice. You should consult a qualified attorney or tax professional to answer your specific questions. Sterk Financial Services is located at 350 Oak Tree Lane, Suite 150, Dakota Dune, South Dakota, 57049 and can be reached at 605-217-3555. Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors list includes 10 recipients per state. The award is based on qualitative and quantitative data, rating thousands of wealth advisors with a minimum of seven years of experience and weighing factors like revenue trends, assets under management, compliance records, industry experience, and best practices. The award is not based on portfolio performance or client reviews. There is no fee in exchange for rankings. Third-party rankings and recognitions are no guarantee of future investment success and do not ensure that a client or prospective client will experience a higher level of performance or results. These ratings should not be construed as an endorsement of the advisor by any client nor are they representative of any one client's evaluation.